0: Amen. Gather together in the presence of the Lord our God. What an awesome opportunity he's given us this morning to receive of him whatever it is we have need of. Amen. Uh, Just a couple of quick things before we get started. Uh, Brother and Sister Gira have uh, provided some treats for us to enjoy during our break uh, in between services. So thank you so much for doing that. Amen. Uh, Now I'm hungry. (coughs) But... uh, Amen. Whenever the Lord concludes the first service, it's not me, <laughs> it's God. We'll enjoy those. Amen. Thank you so much. And we'd like to welcome our visitors with us this morning. Uh, if I can read this uh, Steve and Skylar Nos- Nos- Noser. Okay. Moser. Okay, I apologize for that. Amen. They're from Bishop Booker's church. Amen. So I'm going to be super good, and they're going to bring back a good report. <laughs> Amen. No, but seriously, so glad to have you folks with us this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. Amen. Let's all stand. Amen. Let's call out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He has a plan for our service. This is His service. Not ours. We are His people, not our own. This is His kingdom. Amen. We just desire to let happen whatever God wants to happen here. Amen. He is sovereign in this place. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We worship and we praise You. We laud and we magnify our Creator, our Redeemer, our Savior, the Lover of our souls, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this place today. Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence here I pray, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your will would be manifest in our services today, that all of your heart would be made apparent in this place today. I pray, God, that you would release faith into this assembly to believe you for greater and greater things. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us to open our eyes of faith, to exercise the faith that you've given each person here. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would do wondrously, that you would work gloriously, that You would do a new thing, and that You would continue to do a new thing from this point forward. Hallelujah, Jesus. We give ourselves wholly and completely to the will of God in this place today to receive of You Your good things. Help us, Lord Jesus, to pursue hard after You today, to enter into Your presence, to strive, if necessary, to enter into the presence of God, to simply touch the hem of Your garment, to hear Your voice. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are the Lord our God. You are our exceeding great reward. There is nothing we need more. There is no one we need more than You. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let Your great name be magnified in this place today. Bless the people of God. Bless those present within the sound of my voice, I pray. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated today. Our youth teachers are absent today, they're uh, visiting family, and so uh, we will not have our youth class today, amen. I get to see Jesse's smiling face, looking back at me, amen. (laughs) Praise God. Well, by way of review, last week we talked about uh, Isaac and Rebecca, they got married. The entire marriage ceremony and covenant, marriage covenant, we discovered represents, or maybe rediscovered or what we're reminded of, represents Christ's relationship with His church. Marriage terminology is used in several areas in Scripture. We see in Revelation chapter 19, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, the husband and wife become analogous of Jesus and His bride, the church. In John 14, Jesus is going to prepare a place to dwell with his bride. We discovered that in the natural, in Jewish custom, that's what the bridegroom did. After they were espoused, he went home to his family to build an addition onto his home, so that him and his wife could come and live there. That's what Jesus is doing for us. In Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, or ten bridesmaids, chock full of Wedding terminology, representing again Christ's relationship with His people. Amen. Like Rebecca had to leave her family and everything she knew, so we must leave what we know to pursue a relationship with the Lord. I think this is a necessary step for all Christians to take in some way, fashion, or form that there is something that we're going to have to leave behind. Certainly, our old nature, certainly the way that we used to live, the way that we used to think, is no longer. Uh, it doesn't comport with our new experience with God. We've got to leave those things behind. Maybe there are family members or people, friends that we've had to leave behind, situations, relationships that we've had to leave behind. Many of you have had to do exactly that to pursue a relationship with God. We see in Scripture many times, Abram, Moses, David, the disciples, even Jesus Himself. They left circumstances. They left people. They left all that was familiar and comfortable to go off into the unknown and pursue whatever God had in store for them. Again, our relationship with Jesus is depicted in wedding terminology. Our daily devotions. Uh, Day one, just like Rebecca's life was changed forever because she went about her daily duties, just like she always did, so will ours be transformed if we'll remain faithful to what God has given us to do. Amen. The ordinary brings forth the extraordinary. When we just perform our daily Christian disciplines, we pray every day. Sister Shepard, we read our Bible every day. We do these things day in, day out, day in, day out. And eventually, great things come of that. In uh, martial arts, if anyone has ever done anything with martial arts, um, when you're first starting out, you don't get all the fancy, flassy moves. You don't get the, the, the cool stuff. You get the boring stuff first. You punch a bag like a thousand times. You stretch a lot. You're just, you're just doing mundane, it seems like stupid things. How is this going to make me a fighter? But over process of time, you realize, man, if I didn't have that foundation, there's no way I could do these other things here later. Using our particular gifts and talents for God's glory. Pursuing the ministry God has called us to. All of these things that we remain faithful to, if we will, then God will begin to move us forward. Saying goes if you want something done, give it to a busy man. I think uh, all of us are old enough to understand now uh, what that means. You got someone laying around just doing nothing, it's hard for them, it's hard to overcome inertia, folks. It really is. (laughs) I get home after uh, 10 days of standing in one place watching buns go down the line. I'm ready to plop in a chair. And good luck moving me after that. If I want something done, I've got to get it done before I sit down. Because <laughs> otherwise, oh, it's hard. But when someone's already uh, doing something, they're busy doing different things. Industrious. Bishop's not here. I'll use the term industrious. They're already, their plate is already full. You give, that, you give something to that person, they find a way to get it done. Because they're already rolling. They're already moving forward. you got someone at a dead stop, it's hard to get them pushed and get, get them going. God calls those and promotes those who are already working. Those in the field. Those who are using their hands and feet. Using the gifts and talents God has given them. Those who are already faithful in in those things that they know to do. God promotes them. God calls them before He'll call anyone else. The writer of the devotional said this, Your future is waiting on the other side of your control. thought that was pretty poignant. Day two. We had a little bit of contention on day two. <coughs> Sister Bell talked to me about this before service. I had to agree with her. I, I don't know if there is any way that we can extrapolate Laban's greed and, and lasciviousness from from the story we read in in uh in Genesis. We understand later that Laban becomes that way. I mean, we have Scripture and verse for that. His dealings with Jacob were certainly not on the up and up. But I don't see anything to support it at this point. But, in any case, a general reminder to forsake materialism and a focus on temporal gain. Folks, it's easy to get our eyes off of the right things and onto the wrong things. We need to stay focused on the eternal. We need to stay focused on the spiritual. Those things are real. Those things will last forever. Amen. Day three, children are a blessing from God. They don't always seem like it. I know when I was a child, I knew for a fact that my parents loved every day having me around. I knew that. You didn't have to tell me. (laughs) I just knew it. Now that I'm a parent, uh, I look back and I'm like, well, maybe there were some times where they didn't want me around. Maybe there were once or twice that uh, they would have preferred that I stayed over at a friend's house for a while. But in any case, children are a blessing from God. Their parents aren't perfect, and neither are they. None of us are perfect, folks. I know as kids, we have the, the luxury of sitting back and judging our parents. We have the luxury of criticizing everything they say and everything they do. I didn't verbalize any of that because of fear. I feared my dad. I feared his belt. Uh, But, I thought it. Oh, I thought it. When I'm a parent, I'm going to do things better. I'm going to do things right. Well, I I hope that I could testify today that I did do things better. That I had a foundation to build upon. And uh, I went from there. But I certainly didn't do everything right. Families fight and argue. They give the silent treatment to each other. That's a family. They squabble. They bicker. But, typically... When someone from the outside of the family picks a fight with someone on the inside of the family, the family binds together against that individual. All the other squabbles and bickerings are laid aside. we got an external threat, and that is exactly how our church family ought to be. Not with the physical, per se, but when spiritual attacks happen to a member of our family, Whatever differences we had with that individual, it needs to be laid aside right now. Someone's coming against the family. And we can't allow that to stand. Strong women and strong families make for strong children. Couldn't agree more. A strong church and a strong church family will make for strong spiritual children. Amen. Day 4. Out of great pain comes great ministry. That may be sad for some people uh, to accept, to, to choke down, but it is absolutely true. If you are going to do anything significant for God, if you are going to move forward in ministry, whatever ministry God has given you, then you are going to experience some pain. You are going to experience some suffering, some setbacks, some disappointments. Maybe people are going to stab you in the back. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're going to experience something. There's a reason for that. God's not angry with you. God's not getting even with you for something you did sometime in the past. God is using that pain. He's using that suffering to grow you and to teach you and to transform you into something that God can use. Again, the martial arts analogy. Doing a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups, doing a bunch of planks and stretching. It can get painful, but it's necessary if you're going to if you're going to move forward in that. No pain, no gain. I saw a poster once that said, "No pain, no pain." <laughs> um. But if we're going to do anything for God, if we're going to do anything, period, in the temporal life, there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be setbacks. You start a business. If it were easy, everyone would do it. Because you only work half days when you own your own company, right? The first 12 hours or the second 12 hours? Out of great pain comes great ministry. If you are going through something in the present, if you are enduring something in the moment, just understand, folks, it's probably because He's trying to call you forward. He's trying to move you forward in the ministry that He's called you to do. Day five. When you truly love someone and are committed to them, there is no such thing as sacrifice. There isn't. You just simply do those things that your spouse loves. That's what you do. And you avoid those things that they hate. I don't like vegetables. I like asparagus. But when she makes vegetables, I eat them veggies up. She wants to go for a walk. With my back killing me, I just sat down. I get back up and we go for a walk. Because I love my spouse. And she does the same for me. She does the things she doesn't want to do because I like them. Amen. Thank you. You do those things that Jesus loves. You avoid those things that Jesus hates because when you truly love the Lord and you're committed to Him, there's no such thing as sacrifice. An easy example is Holiness. We don't pursue holiness in our lives because it's a command. Or at least we ought not pursue it simply because it's a command. I suppose it's a good place to start. That's where I started. But eventually, serving the Lord has to move from being a command, being, I'm afraid of of hell, to, I love Jesus and I want to do those things that please Him. Again, Brother Jeff Arnold told this analogy one time. You can go into your wife's just, just clean kitchen. She just cleaned it. It's spotless. You come stomping through with your, your mud, muddy boots on. You just slop the pigs. And you come stomping all over the place. And she gets mad. She gets angry. And you just pull out the marriage certificate and say, Woman, we're married. Whether I stomp over the floor with muddy boots or not doesn't change the fact that I'm married. But it does change the fact whether or not I'm happily married. And it might, it might determine whether or not I stay married. So we do those things that Jesus loves because we love Him. If God loves holiness, I love holiness. If God loves sacrifice, I love sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Whatever God loves, I love. Whatever He hates, I hate. I'm committed to Jesus no matter what. Amen. Our lesson for today, our scripture text is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read the first 13 verses of that. Today we're going to be talking about the unexpected and overlooked. The unexpected and overlooked. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, we come in toward the end of a a scenario. Verse 1 begins by saying this, And the Lord said unto, unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice." And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart." Then Jesse called him inadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the seat. Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. For we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in, for he was ruddy. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Amen. I felt like Sojourner Truth was pushing down on one shoulder and Harriet Tubman was pushing down on the other, saying, sit down, girl. I was glued to my seat. These words were offered to Newsweek magazine in an article by a profoundly courageous African-American lady in Montgomery, Alabama, who refused to give up her bus seat to a white person in 1955. Though subsequently arrested, this aftermath of her act of self-dignity ultimately resulted in the court case that ended bus segregation in Montgomery and across the state. She will forever be a heroine in the civil rights movement, and we all know her as Rosa Parks would be the exact wrong answer. <laughs> I was hoping someone would say it. You may think this historical account is about the late and honorable Rosa Parks, but it is not. Some nine months before she took her stand against the racially prejudiced laws of her day, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin had done the exact same thing. Having just completed a unit of study on great African-American leaders in America, Claudette asserted her constitutional right to retain the seat for which she had paid. Two police officers forcibly removed her from the bus amid a torrent of verbal abuse and insults. She did not retaliate. She did not swear. In fact, she quoted the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. This this teen girl's act of courage helped, at least in part, to embolden Mrs. Park's actions months later. For various reasons, the NAACP chose the Park's case to be the face of the challenge to the segregationist practice. However, a relatively unknown 15-year-old girl lit this fire of justice first. She was the -the behind-the-scenes influence that helped write a moral blot in America's story. Often the unknown, the unheralded, and the overlooked have played significant roles throughout history. And certainly in God's kingdom, our king looks beyond what humanity sees to see the potential for our lives to make an impact. While we often present excuses for why our background, family, or challenges make it impossible for us to do anything great for God, he looks beyond those obstacles to call us to what his grace can accomplish in and through us. David was overlooked by everyone around him. When the second king of Israel was to be anointed from Jesse's household, no one in his family thought David would be the one to experience the anointing oil. Even the man of God had a hard time believing God's mantle would not fall on one of the more naturally obvious choices. But God chose David, and now God chooses you. Amen. God's design for Israel was for a theocracy. It was never meant to be a kingdom ruled by an earthly king. However, because the other nations had earthly kings, Israel wanted an earthly king. God would choose who He would speak through. God would choose who He would operate through according to His good pleasure. That's how He would rule over Israel. God would be the king. He would rule supreme. And He would use whoever He would to enact His will. But they pushed and they pushed and they complained and they moaned. Give us a king like the other nations. God warned them through Samuel what would happen if they pursued this course of action. This is the king that you're going to have over you. They're going to take your sons and your daughters. They're going to take your money. They're going to send you off to wars. You're not going to like it. It's not what you think it is. How many times do we ask the Lord for things? We know it's the will of God. We know this is the best thing for us. God is saying, no, no, think. This is not what's good for you. This will lead you down a wrong path. This will do things in your life that you don't want to deal with. No, no, this is good. This is right. This is what I want. If we keep pressing, sometimes God will give us the desire of our heart. And he'll let us suffer the consequences. He's a merciful God and he'll be there to pick up the pieces when we come crawling back to him. Thank God for that. But they continued to insist and so God gave them what they asked for. God chose their first king, King Saul. Now Saul started great. He had a lot of good things going for him. He was a good man with a humble spirit. We saw him when he was to be actually anointed in front of Israel. He hid among the stuff. I want nothing to do with that public display. Who am I? I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. He accepted counsel from God's man Samuel. Samuel would tell him what to do, and he did it. He accepted that, even though he was the king. He worshipped God. He even prophesied. So his start was a good start. But our start isn't always where we end up, is it? Saul's story, unfortunately, continues. Saul began to experience manifold failures, but ultimately his direct rejection of godly instruction brought about his downfall. He was commanded to completely destroy the Amalekites. And we've talked at nauseam about this account. I won't rehash specifics and details, but we understand what the, what the Scriptures say. God selected Sam, or Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites because the iniquity of the Amalekites was now full. It was time for judgment. Wipe them out. Man, woman, and child. (gasps) What? How could God do something like that? Destroy children? How shocking. How How morally reprehensible is this God of the Old Testament? You ever heard that? I simply like to start asking questions. What do you mean by morally reprehensible? How do you define that? How do you define moral? How do you define right and wrong? Good and evil? On what basis are you judging God? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? How how do we arrive at that? Is it a consensus? Does the government get to tell us what's right and wrong? Fifty years ago, homosexuality was illegal. Now it's becoming pretty close to mandatory. Was it right then? Is it wrong now? Or do these things just evolve and change as time goes on? Who gets to tell me how I ought to live? I want to decide for myself what's right and wrong. I want to choose how I live my own life. I watched that, by the way. And the enemy is going, Yes, sir! I couldn't have said it better myself. There is only one commandment, I think, in the Satanic Bible. I know this one is the first one. Do what thou wilt, for that is the whole of the law. Just simply do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. That's it. That's all the enemy requires of you. But isn't that quite enough? God gets to tell me how I should live my life. God gets to tell me right from wrong. How am I going to stand in judgment over God? How am I going to sit here in my easy chair and all of my philosophy books and my, my theology books and all of my worldly wisdom and experience, all of my knowledge on moral aspects, And tell God, you're wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Now, I'll grant you, from our cultural perspective, it does seem shocking. But who cares? Who cares what I think is shocking? Who cares what I think is right or wrong? I doubt that any of you do, and rightly so. Who cares? I don't have the authority or the the power to enforce my ideas of right and wrong. But God does. God is the standard of right and wrong. In any, any case, Paul decides to take that question on himself and he spares all the parts of Amalek that he didn't consider too bad. In effect, Saul was basically saying, "Yeah, I heard what you said, God, but overruled. I think I think you're wrong in this this area here. These ought to be saved. These ought." And then, when confronted, he made the excuse, "We're saving the best parts to sacrifice to the Lord. Is that what you were doing? Is that what was in your mind when you did that?" Uh, Again, we don't have Scripture and verse for what Saul was thinking, but I can imagine a scenario where that's probably not true. Saul overruled the commandment of God and decided to do things his way. What would cause Saul to go from humility, the good start that he had, the teachability, to overt rebellion? In the 20 years of his reign, what would cause an individual to do that? We've talked about some aspects of this in past messages, but experience certainly, he had no real experience in leadership. He had no real experience uh, with, that we read about anyway of going through anything significantly difficult having to trust and rely on on God. We see in David's life the exact opposite. He came from humble beginnings too, but we see the Lord was preparing him. He fought the lion. He fought the bear. And David always gave credit to God. God fought for me. He gave me victory over. So when it came to Goliath, he was ready. Saul wasn't. Paul didn't have those experiences to fall back on. He didn't have that that understanding. And so when he ascended to the throne, eventually he started thinking, "I'm the guy. This is this is how I'm thinking. Again, I don't have scripture in verse for it, but this is what I think happened. I'm the guy. I'm the king. Everyone does what I say." Even God. That's not a difficult leap to make. Samuel's mourning. This one section I wish that I could get someone else to teach, but I'm going to move through it. Pastors will correct and rebuke, but if they're worth their salt, the correction and the rebukes are always motivated from a position of love. If they're motivated from any other source, that, in, that pastor's wrong. I was told a long time ago, and I, I remember it every time I come to the pulpit, don't preach hate, don't preach your, your wounds, don't preach what's going on in your life. You preach peace, you preach joy, you, you preach hope. 'Cause that's the God I serve, folks. That's the God. I, God's not having a bad day. I might be having a bad day. You'll never know it, I hope. But God's certainly not having a bad day. He's having a fantastic day. He's having a victorious day. And I serve that God. So, then by extension, I'm having a great day. I'm having a victorious day. May not feel like it, may not look like it, but I am. I'm experiencing the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. Because He's my joy. He's my peace. He's my hope. Amen. My hope's not found in this world, folks. God help the man, the woman, whose hope is found in this world. Oh, my word. Revelation three nineteen says so this is Jesus speaking, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Even when Jesus rebukes his child, corrects his child, it's done out of love. Not vengeance, not anger. It's done out of love. And if I have the mind of Christ, I will rebuke and chasten, but I will love first. I will love first. Samuel gave Saul the word of God in obedience to the commandment of God, but Saul's heart trembled, or Samuel's heart trembled for the consequences. For Samuel 15:35 says Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that, it, that he had made Saul king over Israel. Have you ever felt rebuked or actually were rebuked by a spiritual leader? Yeah, maybe all of us. I know I have. I've certainly felt rebuked, but I've definitely been rebuked. More than once. Because I I had some growing up to do when I came into church. Let's put it that way. I had some things I needed to, to learn and to get sorted out. But it was done out of love every time. Pastor Jesse Williams was... He's passed now, he's gone on to his reward, but I still look to him for, for guidance. I still look to him. What would he do? What would he say in this situation? He was always mercy, 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 mercy. Give him another chance. His wife Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Things that you sow, that's what you're going to reap. That was her favorite scripture. Pastor Williams, he was always, well, let's, let's give him another chance. Let's, let's see what happens. We'll guide him. We'll correct him. We'll do some course correction. But and that's the way I am. That's the way I like to be. Because that's the way my pastor was. That was what was an example to me. And, and in scripture, I see God doing the same thing with his people always giving them another chance. Eventually, eventually that closes. Eventually they were led out of the promised land into captivity. But it took hundreds and hundreds of years for that to happen. How did you respond when you were rebuked? My initial response was anger. I didn't voice it. I submitted. But afterward, I prayed about it. I thought about it. And I ended up being so thankful. So thankful that I had a pastor that loved me enough to tell me I was wrong to correct me when I was doing something stupid. Amen. I miss him. We must accept that life can be difficult. Samuel's obedience to the voice of God caused him profound grief. And when we are obedient to the voice of the Lord, Sometimes that means we're going to have to do things, we're going to have to say things we don't want to do. We're going to have to tell someone something they don't want to hear, and you know they don't want to hear it. You're going to have to suffer their ire. You're going to have to suffer their wrath. You're going to have to suffer whatever consequences comes from your obedience to God. Now, serving Jesus Christ is the best life anyone could possibly live. I say that unabashedly. I say that to the, the from the mountaintop. Serving Jesus is the best life possible. I've lived out there, I've lived serving God. Serving Jesus is way better. There's no comparison. There's just no comparison at all. Yeah, I still have hard times. I still have I still stub my toe, still pound my thumb with a hammer. Yeah, I still make stupid mistakes. But Jesus is there to help me through it. I have help. I have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Someone who will never leave me, never forsake me. My friends out there, when things got bad, no one was picking up the phone. No one would answer. Things were going good, I had a little bit of jingle in my pocket. Oh, hey buddy. What you doing tonight? I don't have any money right now. I think you could spot me. Not all my friends were like that, but the majority were. You ever hear the expression, no good deed goes unpunished? Yeah, well, it's alive and well in Christianity, folks. It's alive and well. How many good deeds did the apostles do in the book of Acts? They went about doing nothing but good. Jesus went about doing nothing but good. That worked out really good for him, didn't it? Well, it did, but in a different way. He was crucified for all of his good deeds. The apostles, all of them save John, were martyred for all their good deeds. 1 Corinthians 4.12, this is Paul speaking. In labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. That's the proper response, folks. We obey the will of God no matter what that is, and the consequences fall where they may. Jesus is still God. Jesus is still our ever-present help in time of need. Jesus is still my friend that sticks closer than a brother. If I have to suffer for obeying God, so be it. There must be a reason He wanted me to do that. There must be a greater uh, purpose at stake here than my immediate comfort, my immediate needs. But we need to obey the will of God no matter what. Samuel had to search for a new king. While mourning for Saul, God gave Samuel new instructions. 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Now we understand, continuing on, that Samuel felt a little bit of risk. A little bit of danger. Well, yeah, I want to do that for you, God, but Saul might hear about it. It's not too much of a leap. It's not doesn't take too much imagination, especially where Saul was at right now, to imagine that if I anoint another king over Israel, he'll have me arrested and executed for treason. Right? And we see later, that's exactly what he would have done. Later we see him hunting David. But in any case, not everyone would have known of God's rejection of Saul. Samuel told Saul, but how many were standing around actually listening? Probably not too many. Samuel told him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Who actually heard that? Maybe a few people. But I doubt there were too many people just hanging out when Saul and Samuel were talking. When I was in the army, when the sergeant major and the the lieutenant colonel were out in the field talking, I wasn't hanging around anywhere close to that. There is no way. I was on the other side of the field. As far away as I could get. They're talking about stuff way above my pay grade. i They, they don't need my input. They're not going to ask for it. I don't want to give any. So when the king and the prophet of God were sitting around talking, I doubt there were too many others sitting there listening. But maybe there were a few. Those few, I imagine, were thinking, what's going on? God chose Saul. Why would He reject him now? Axelod and Saul was likely to fight to keep the crown. But Samuel had clear instructions from God. Now, I find it interesting that God didn't send Samuel to David, did He? He sent Samuel to Jesse. And then once he got to Jesse, more would be revealed. I'll show you at that point who I've I've chosen. God seems to delight to give His servants incremental commands, to give us progressive revelation of of His will for us. When we obey the first command, the next one is given. If we disobey, we're not going to receive the next set of instructions until we line up with God's will. If we look at the life of Abram, we'll take a bit of a detour to explore this idea. Genesis 12one 1-4 says, "...Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing." And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee, and of thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Notice we don't see anything about inheriting a land. Nothing mentioned. Just go to a land that I'll show you. Nothing about inheriting anything. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Whoops? Almost, So close, So close. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. We pick up the story again in first, uh, Genesis twelve, verse six. Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Okay, so now we get a little bit more. I'm going to give you this land. Genesis 13, 14-17, The Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it. Now he's expounding, giving a lot more detail. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. Here's something new. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, For I will give it unto thee. Genesis 15, 1-4 says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That verse has nothing to do with the lesson. I just love that verse. Amen. Verse 2, that's where we pick up. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed." And, lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. All right, now we have the promise of a son. We have the promise of a heritage, descendants. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abraham was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, "'As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. Thou shalt be a father of many nations.'" Here's something new again. Many nations will come out of him. "'Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant.'" to be a God unto thee. Here's something new again. God will establish His everlasting covenant with Abraham's descendants. God is choosing him out of people, out of all the nations of the earth. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Amen. So we see in the life of Abraham, I could have used other examples, this progressive revelation, of what God is wanting to do in and through someone. Isaiah 28.10 says, For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. That's how God teaches us. And that's how our lives generally progress. The will of God is revealed to us in incremental steps. I think if God gave it to us all in one shot, it would freak us out. I'm glad He does it the way He does. Give it to me in nice bite-sized pieces that I can digest, that I can handle. Amen. Doing the will of God in the face of opposition can be intimidating, but when we have clear instructions, we must obey lest we risk God's disfavor. Folks, what we stand to gain is so much greater than the immediate discomfort we might experience in fulfilling the will of God we've got to look past the immediate discomfort, past the immediate consequences unto God's greater plan. Amen. Eliab was Samuel's choice, but God rejected Eliab. Eliab? However you care to pronounce it. And every brother that was gathered at the meeting was Samuel. Now I can imagine that Samuel was looking for God to choose out another man just like, like Saul. I think that was probably true. He was looking for another Saul. Big, masculine, kingly looking. Because that's how kings are chosen after all. Physical appearance. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God's criteria for kingdom service and particularly for kingdom leadership is not visual to the casual observer. It's not apparent. Someone may look, quite frankly, like a geek, like like a moron. Gross. I don't know, whatever adjectives you want to throw out there. But definitely not leadership material. The guy couldn't talk his way out of a wet paper sack. The guy can't deal with people. The guy can't do this. The lady can't do that. But those aren't criteria that God needs in an individual. What God is looking for is in here. Everything else, He can provide Himself. You don't need to have a particular gift or talent or ability. You don't have to have a particular personality to be used mightily of God. It's God doing the using. It's God working through us. It's not up to us. All He needs is a proper vessel through which to work. That's all He needs. And if I've properly prepared myself, a vessel meet and fit for the Master's use, He can use me mightily. God's criteria is rather found in those characteristics that speak of character, integrity, passion for the things of God, inward qualities of the heart, humility, submission to God's will, availability, a desire to work, a desire to serve in whatever capacity He's chosen me to do so. It is the inner man that will qualify or disqualify someone from being used by God. Nothing more. Nothing less. That's it. Learning to value and accept what God values. Folks, it's important. It's imperative that all of our life choices be made using the same set of values that God has. I've got to live my life in a way that's favorable to Him. That's pleasing to Him. Now, I can think and I can reason and I can... Assume all I want. This is probably good for God. But is that, is that the best way to move forward? I think I would rather know. I think I would rather be assured that what I am doing, what I am refraining from doing, pleases God. That's why, again, we've got to know the Word of God. We've got to have a relationship with God. Those two things, folks, are so important. There are all kinds of people out there calling themselves Christians. But they're not Christians, not in the biblical sense. They have no relationship with God. They don't know John 3.16 from Acts 2.38. Or Micah one one, Or they're looking up scriptures in the book of Hezekiah. There is no book of Hezekiah. Sounds like it, though. That's why I use that. <laughs> Sounds like that ought to be a book. God places. If God places worth on motives and attitudes, so must we. If God values the intangible aspects of an individual, so must we. Giving favoritism because of connections, talents, or appearance is in lieu of the condition of a holy heart, displeases God. Period. We don't choose out someone. Before my family and I moved here, we were in the process of selecting a pastor for the Eau Claire Church. They got a great one. Uh, But uh, one of the things uh, that I wanted, we had a chance to... Everyone give input, blah, blah, blah. What I said is something I'd heard from from other people. Uh, These are the criteria for a pastor. Good preaching isn't one of them. Now, I like good preaching just as much as anyone else. But that's not a criteria for being a pastor. Not in the Bible anyway. So we ought not make it one when we're looking for one. There are definitely criteria listed. And those are what we need to look for. When we're looking for someone to fill a leadership role. We're looking for inward qualities. Not gifts and talents and ability. The Eliabs of this world are plentiful. But they've all been rejected by God. God revealed his choice, Jesse's forgotten son. His youngest son almost seemed like an afterthought in this account. Wasn't called to the meeting, wasn't even mentioned, until Samuel asked him specifically. Samuel said unto Jesse, uh 1 Samuel 16, 11, Are here all thy children? He said, eh, There remaineth yet the youngest. He's keeping the sheep. We typically make separating out to be a noble pursuit. It's a worthy cause, but back in biblical days, for the most part, it was not a noble cause. It was not anything to be aspired to. <clears throat> they were generally considered unclean and disreputable. For whatever reason, no one picked David except the only one who matters. Ever felt like that? Ignored? Overlooked? I can do things. I want to do things. Other people are always chosen. Other people are always picked. But if God chooses an individual, folks, that's all that's needed. That's all that's necessary. He will move heaven and earth to get his man or his woman where they need to be, when they need to be there. 1 Samuel 16:12 and 13 says, He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David rose up and went to Ramah. The one others forgot and discounted was elevated by God to the ultimate preeminence in Israel. He was completely disregarded. Even by his own family. His own brothers. They didn't think it important enough. They didn't think him important enough to call to the meeting. Everyone else was there except David. David. Reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians one 26 through 26-29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Amen. Psalm 75 and 7 says, God is the judge, he putteth down one and setteth up another. He chooses whom he will choose, when he chooses him, and he will use that individual how he desires to. Period. End of story. No one can come against it, no one can argue with it. Nothing. Folks, if God chooses you and he ordains you and commissions you to do a work, I can't stop that. All I all I get you're not mine. I didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. We're God's people. He's the one that chooses. He's the one that ordains. He's the one that that moves around according to His plan and His will. Period. All I can do, all we can do is say, yes, Lord. Let's get in line with what you're wanting to do. Quick, fast, and in a hurry. Amen. I am over time. Let's all stand. I'll just read this a little bit in closing. God has big plans for you. He has not designed you for ordinary. He has created you and saved you for something more. Others may not see it. At times you may even doubt it yourself. Still you have a bright destiny. Go ahead, David. Keep your heart right so God may see it and exalt you in due time. Amen. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. We worship and we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that although we may not feel like it, it may not seem like it. Your eye is upon us. Your hand is upon us. You have chosen us for great and mighty things. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would receive this truth, that we would walk forward in it, that your name would be glorified because of it. Bless the remainder of your service, we pray, and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll head downstairs and enjoy. The-